The most important is not how you lose weight in the dieting periods, but the most important is um, maintaining weight during the energy balance phase. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm Nathan Rose, and with me today is obesity researcher, Professor Amanda Salas. Welcome, Amanda. Thanks, Nathan. Happy to be here. Fantastic. So we're going to dive in uh, to obesity again. I'm going to follow on from the podcast I did recently with uh, Stefan Guillenay, who we spoke about the, the set point of obesity, how people, uh, their, their brain essentially chooses a, a body weight they, it prefers, um, which may not be in line with our conscious ideals of where our body weight should be. So I want to dive into some of the, the neurobiology behind that and then look at some of the strategies you've been um, exploring in your research and also look at some of the, the popular dieting trends um, that are being used today and, and maybe how they do or don't uh, help with this uh, neurobiology of obesity. Um, so maybe before we dive in, perhaps just a little bit, of a, a bit on your background, how you have become involved in obesity. It's something personally you've been involved with for a long period of time, is that correct? That's right. So it all started as a um, adolescent when I was uh, with a BMI body mass index in the obese range myself, always dieting, always trying something, you know, that could help me. And I was always fighting up against my own body systems, you know, the hunger that kicks in when you start losing weight. I mean, you every diet is fine in the beginning, but after you've been on the diet for a while, your hunger kicks in, you start to feel sluggish, it's hard to continue with the exercise. And and I thought, well, if we could just overcome that physical barrier, um, obviously there's more than physical barriers in obesity. There's the whole environment which is obesogenic and there's emotional issues. But for me, I thought if we could find out what that physical barrier from inside the body is, then it would be um, you know, a way to to help bust through and 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 lose weight effectively. So that's hence my um, passion for obesity research and finding better ways to break down that um, that that wall, that barrier that we all have within us um, that prevents us from losing weight easily. Okay, interesting. Well, let's dive into that those barriers. So there's this concept of adaptive thermogenesis where the body adjusts basically to the energy restriction the person's doing when they're on a, a diet. Um, so first, perhaps let's dive into how this is controlled in the brain and the hypothalamus, how it receives these sort of signals and how it makes decisions based on these signals. Yeah. So first of all, um, to clarify, this, this concept of adaptive thermogenesis, that's only part of the barriers barrier that our body um elicits against weight loss. So adaptive thermogenesis is where our metabolic rate or energy expenditure is reduced when we eat less or exercise more. So um, so that's part of the problem. But the major part of the problem is that with weight loss, um, hunger or the drive to eat increases. And that seems to be the major, these two together, increased hunger and reduced energy expenditure um, contribute to that That difficulty with losing weight and it seems from research that increased hunger is the main problem main culprit but in any case the parts that that hunger and that reduction in metabolic rate 
they seem to be controlled by the same part of the brain um, with some common mechanisms, at least in, in some some elements of the mechanism. So um, when a person is losing weight, they're, um, they're dieting or they're they're exercising more or both, what happens is once there's a certain amount of fat loss, the hypothalamus will register, okay, well, we've got less fat now than the set point, and then it's like the hypothalamus kicks on with kicks in with this um, neurochemical changes that, um, that collectively lead to reduced energy expenditure as well as increased hunger. And this is happening in the hypothalamus and it seems to be instigated in the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus. Interesting. And this is where like, um, the, the hypothalamus will essentially attenuate, say, the thyroid function um, and obviously increase the, the hunger. But I think um, for some clinicians, we've often hunted for like this uh, hypothyroidism driving obesity, but would it more so be the fact that the hypothyroidism is a consequence of the energy restriction? And Yeah, so hypothyroidism um, with... Um, obesity treatment or subclinical hypothyroidism is something that happens during um, weight loss efforts in people with um, overweight or obesity. So um, thyroid function will be reduced in some capacity. You don't always see it very clearly on, for example, clinical measures of thyroid function, but you might see it on um, increased levels of reverse T3 or maybe reduced levels of um, T3 or reduced levels of T4 or maybe you see it in a cellular level in the tissues, you see less conversion to the active thyroid hormones in the tissues themselves um, or less TSA. So you do sometimes see um, reductions in thyroid function with dieting, but this is only part of it. Uh, This is um, there's also that hypothalamus, so the hypothalamus which instigates those changes in thyroid function. It's also inducing changes in the output of sympathetic nerves and that those sympathetic nerves uh, activate energy expenditure, for example, production of energy for heat. And during weight loss, um, that, that sympathetic output is decreased transiently and energy expenditure is reduced. Um, then there's also the hypothalamus, which is controlling appetite. And uh, nobody really knows how chemical changes in the hypothalamus lead to a different, an altered drive to eat. You know, the connection is not really clear and, and not really known, but through neurochemical changes, neuropeptide changes, there is this um, increased drive to eat. So thyroid function reduction is part of it. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole swag of responses that make it really hard for people to lose weight. Yeah, right. Um, just in the hypothalamus then, and yeah, as you said, science still is not completely clear on, on some of these mediators, but there are a couple um, reasonably well-known mediators, would you say there's a couple of neurons and that the peptides they secrete are synonymous with appetite and um, satiety? Is that is that correct? Can you dive yeah, into there's, there's some what I call the ringleaders okay. in the adaptive response to energy restriction. I call it, uh, I tend to call it the famine reaction. It's easier to say than mm. adaptive response to energy restriction. And the ringleaders are a couple of orexigenic peptides or peptides that promote 
um, food intake and also reduce energy expenditure. And major culprits there are neuropeptide Y and agouti-related peptide. There are others, but these are, seem to be ringleaders in that if you um, you block both of these, then you, you can get some leeway into reducing things. But, you know, like with all ringleaders, they've always got a whole mm. bunch of workers working with them and supporting them. So even if you knock out the, the ringleaders, for example, neuropeptide Y or a goody related peptide, and I spent like a decade <laughs> looking at, wow, can we knock out yeah. this ringleader with genetic modification in, in mice? And what would happen invariably was we'd knock one out or we'd knock the receptor for one out. Um, once we even knocked out four receptors for in a single mouse for for the receptors for one of these ringleaders, neuropeptide Y, and we thought that's it, we've got it. You know, we've got the ringleader, we've got all the um, you know, the mules that are doing the work for the ringleader. We thought we're going to definitely get an animal now that's lean, that that doesn't respond to dieting with an adaptive response or a famine reaction. But what happened, and this is the thing that triggered me into doing human research as opposed to mouse research, was that we knocked out all these four genes in a single mouse and the mouse was more obese wow. than a control mouse. Wow. Whereas we expected that mouse was going to be lean. <laughs> and it just shows that when you knock out something, um, in that orexigenic pathway, any of the molecules that play a role in adaptive responses to energy restriction, you knock out one of the players or many of the players and something else just comes in and takes it play, takes its place and it comes in with a vengeance and does an even stronger job. So, um, yeah, those ringleaders are, are very, very powerful. You must have been stumped after that. Um, but, yeah, certainly... Um Physiology never ceases to amaze me about the redundancy and we try and make things black and white and then there's all these grey and context that, that shows up. <laughs> exactly. It's a bit like blood pressure regulation, you know, with with um, blood pressures regulated in the hypothalamus and to have any impact on it, you need several drug types to, you know, ha have an impact. And with obesity, anything that's pharmacological will need to target a lot of um, different pathways. Yeah. and. Yeah, that's why I moved to um, looking at what we can do with what we've got now available to us in terms of nutritional therapy, um, lifestyle therapy. What can we do now with the tools that are available now? Because I think the drugs for obesity treatment are, you know, a good decade yeah, away. Yeah, a long way off. Okay. Well, let's move now to, to human research and just before we move on to how to potentially solve it, um, what are some of the things that have been noted in humans uh, whilst undergoing caloric restriction? Some of the, I suppose, negative side effects due to this adaptive thermogenesis, say on uh, muscle mass or bone and metabolism. Yeah, so we do know that um, in humans, well, in humans, you can't really look into the brain and see what's happening to their levels of neuropeptide Y or a goody-related peptide during a diet or in a diet and exercise regime. But we've got a fair idea that it, that what might be happening in their brains is similar to what's happening in mouse brains or rat brains because we see neuroendocrine responses that in humans during dieting that are similar to what you see in mice and rats and other animals when you infuse those peptides into the brain. So in humans that are dieting, as I mentioned, you'll see reduced thyroid function, 
you'll also see increased um, activation of the hypothalamo-pituitary-adrenal axis. So you'll see increased levels of cortisol. You don't see it all the time. depends on the time of day and the, the, the phase of the diet that you measure. Um, but um, in some cases, you'll see an increased cortisol, which is like a stress response. You'll see also reduced IGF-1 concentrations in um, some paradigms, and in some paradigms you'll also see um, reduced active concentrations of, of sex hormones like testosterone or estradiol. And so these are all um, some of the hormone, some of the hormonal changes that happen with dieting. You also see increases in concentrations of hormones that promote hunger, like ghrelin and reductions in concentrations of hormones that induce satiety, such as peptide YY. So these are changes, hormonal changes that promote the drive to eat. And these neuroendocrine changes with weight loss, they always worried me because I saw them in, in rats and mice, um, and I was looking at the, invest, the um, mechanisms for those hormonal changes in rats and mice. And you know, if you take those same hormonal changes um, that you see in people during weight loss programs and you impose those changes or they're experimentally or medically imposed on people um, without overweight or obesity, what you see is adverse outcomes for body composition. For example, with less IGF, less sex hormones, more cortisol, you'll tend to see loss of lean body mass, loss of muscle tissue, loss of muscle strength. Um, you'll also tend to see loss of bone as well as a tendency to store fat in the midriff region. So that was why I was very interested to understand, well, what's happening during dieting to people's body composition? Because obviously, well, we need to treat obesity, but if the treatment for obesity is chipping away at people's musculoskeletal integrity, then we need to be aware of that and really take measures to work against it. For example, absolutely insist somehow that weight loss is not accompanied without, um, is not performed without strength training, for example. So um, there have been systematic reviews and meta-analyses, analyses, some of which my team and I have conducted and we have seen that with weight loss, there is some loss of muscle strength and there is some loss of bone mineral density. But, uh, and this would be consistent with um, some of those neuroendocrine changes that are seen with weight loss. But um, what we don't know is you know, these aren't really good changes, loss of bone density and loss of muscle strength, but how does that downside of weight loss weigh up against mm. the really clear good sides of weight loss, yeah. which is diabetes medication, um, reduced um, risk factors for cardiovascular disease, etc. So it's probably something more to be aware of and, and something probably that we need to um, be really strong about advocating for exercise during weight loss programs, especially weight-bearing and strength. Um, training. Yeah, interesting. I think there's always a, um, a focus on the aerobic component because it can enhance um, weight loss and I believe it can also 
better improve the uh, hormonal milieu, I suppose, of um, diet-induced obesity, but perhaps we don't pay enough attention to maintaining the, um, the muscle mass and strength. Um, so, yeah, so that really highlights that people who are once obese that have lost weight do not um, have the same physiology, I suppose, of people who have never been overweight. Would, would that be true? Yes, that's that's correct. If you um, well, I mean, we always say that obesity is um, only ever ma- managed; it's never mm. cured. Um, and I know, per- speaking personally, it's been a long time since I lost or ate, but I still need to manage that excess weight because it can come back any time. I I feel it's just waiting to come back. <laughs> but yeah, but um. What we don't know about obesity, and one of the big questions in the field, and there is a lot of debate about this, is, I mean, it's it's agreed in the in the field that when a person goes on a weight loss diet or a diet plus exercise program, that there will be adaptive responses and a whole range of adaptive responses. They're all working to to prevent um, fat loss, to prevent weight loss. We know that that happens, but the big controversy in the field is how long do those changes last for so in some research these changes last for one three even six years after the diet has finished even though people have regained some of the weight they lost they still um, show signs of these adaptive responses to energy restriction and in another other sets of studies independent studies probably an equal number of studies, you see that these adaptive responses to energy restriction dissipate after 10 days, 14 days, three months or a year after weight loss. So it's not really clear if once you've lost weight and once your body has responded with those adaptive responses to energy restriction, it's not really clear how long they last for. And it's likely that... um, they may last forever in some people and in other people they may be able to dissipate or subside with time. Wow. Um, hmm. And that can be even after like a, a 10 or 12-week diet, say a year later, they've only dieted for three months yet, um, uh, nine months later there's still elevated levels of hunger, etc. Exactly, wow. that's right. Yeah, nine months later, even six years later in one study. Wow. So it sounds a bit uh, pessimistic, but uh, now let's turn your attention, our attention to um, the research you've been doing to perhaps mitigate or at least um, offset some of this with your, uh, your recent study, the, the Matador study. Can you explain some of the details there on this one? Yeah. So the Matador study is a study where we, it's a randomized controlled trial where um, this is a study done that I did in collaboration with. Um, Professor Neula Byrne and um, and others, and the study was led by um, Neula Byrne. And in this study, what we did is we randomised people to either continuous dieting, so just your regular type of um, 30% reduction in um, kilojoule intake relative to kilojoule requirements. So it's a, a slow and steady kind of kind of diet, um, continuously for 16 weeks. And in the other group, we randomised them to that same 16 weeks of energy restriction, but after every two weeks of energy restriction, we gave them a two-week break from the diet in that 
um, instead of providing them with food that was um, 30% restricted relative to their energy requirements, we provided them with food that delivered 100% of their estimated energy requirements. So it was a bit like a, a break from the diet, although they were still eating um, food that we provided. And the rationale for having these two-week breaks from energy restriction in the intermittent group was that we had seen research that showed that in some studies, the some of the adaptive responses to energy restriction can be attenuated or completely abolished by a period of 10 to 14 days in energy balance. So, you know, pharmaceuticals and genetic research, the kind of research that I was doing, you know, we're looking for this, for this, um, you know, this drug that's going to reduce that adaptive response to energy restriction. And it's really elusive, as I mentioned, you know, that hypothalamus is a tangle of redundancy, um, all trying to protect us against weight loss. But here we have the possibility that providing people or, or allowing people to eat more food for a period of two weeks, that may be able to, you know, take off or remove that adaptive response that's making it hard for them to lose weight. So that was the rationale for giving that two-week um, period on energy balance. It's like a, like a weight loss um, drug in a way, yeah. but provided by food. And um, we did find significantly greater weight loss and significantly greater fat loss with no difference in lean tissue loss in the people on the intermittently energy-restricted diet compared to people on the um, continuous diet. And the increase in weight loss, it was to the, it was almost a, um, an incremental 5% more. So for, um, the weight loss was around 14% of body weight in the people on the intermittent diet compared to around 9.5%. Um, on the continuous diet. So this is the kind of difference in weight loss that if you could get a weight loss drug that produces that much more weight loss than a placebo drug, and it, as long as it doesn't have side effects, then you'd be able to market that mm. and sell that for a lot of money. <laughs> um, but here we have something that is is, is providing that, that improved weight loss and fat loss, um, and it's something that's potentially accessible to everyone. Well, that's, as long as, yeah, it's pretty amazing results. It's uh, quite a big difference. Um, so, with the with the uh, diet break period, can you just clarify? I think we've shown it to some people, and it can be misinterpreted as like overeating and um, going overboard in a sense. What? Um, but it's energy balance, as I understand, and. And the goal is um, not necessarily to lose weight that period, but to essentially remain weight stable. You shouldn't see like a an increase in weight and then that two week off period. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. So we've just um, we've just written a large review on that this, which we've had um, some uh, good news from the journal today about publication and and what happens is people alternate between periods of very severe mm. energy restriction. To periods of moderate energy restriction, 
back to severe energy restriction and, and then moderate energy restriction. But throughout the whole intervention, they're in some kind of energy restriction, just varying levels. Right. And from looking at the data and the outcomes from those trials and looking at the adaptive responses to energy restriction that were measured in those trials, we think that if people remain in energy restriction during the diet, then they don't get that proper um, alleviation or relief from those physiological changes that are causing those adaptive responses. So it seems very important that people get out of energy restriction when they're having um, a diet break. So it's really important to get out of energy restriction. It's important to eat enough so that your body is not um, perceiving ongoing energy restriction. But on the other hand, in the trials where people got out of energy restriction but they seemed to overeat, as indicated by weight gain during the diet breaks, then the weight gain during the diet breaks just offset the weight mm. loss during the, um, during the energy restriction and, and there wasn't any benefit over and above continuous energy restriction in terms of weight loss. So, yes, it's, um, it's a diet break. Um, we tend to call it an energy balance phase because energy balance is what we're going for. We don't want energy restriction and we don't want energy excess. Right. And, yeah, the next step in research is to find out how to achieve that in people free living in the um, society. But certainly daily weighing is probably um, okay. one yeah, 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 sure. Because you provide all the food on both both phases of the diet. Um, yeah. So, and just to clarify, they they lost more weight on the um the diet using the the pulsing or the diet um intermittent dieting. It wasn't just because they did the diet for longer, but the actual while they're dieting, they they tend to lose more weight in that period. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So when we looked at how much their weight was changing on the period it's off on the periods of energy balance, the average weight change was zero, uh, zero kilos plus or minus 0.3 kilos. So there was no weight change during those periods off the diet on average. So the greater weight loss was not because they were continually losing weight over the whole longer time. It was because they were losing more weight when they were on the diet. Yes. Okay, great. Um, maybe for people that want to start and trial them themselves i imagine you'd need to first establish your weight stable caloric intake maybe two or three weeks of um just recording find your average then you'd then you'd work out a 30 percent reduction from there and and then you'd oscillate between the two yeah i think the most important is not how you lose weight in the dieting periods but the most important is um maintaining ah. weight during the energy balance phase. So, yeah, determining how much you need to eat to maintain your weight is a really good start. So um, you could do this, yeah, as you say, with a food diary. It doesn't have to be with determining kilojoule intake. I mean, myself personally, I just cannot, my body can't understand kilojoules because, <laughs> yeah, it's just so abstract. When it comes to eating, it's like... Yeah, it does. So, you know, you can either count kilojoules or you can either, either you know, 
use a food diary and look at, okay, well, this is how much I usually have for breakfast, lunch and dinner, whatever, snacks, and and get a really good feel for how much you need to eat to maintain weight and then just apply that um, during the energy balance phases and eat less (laughs) during the energy restriction phase and anything less than what you need to eat for weight maintenance. Um, if you do it over a consistent period of time, like two weeks, it will result in weight loss. Okay, great. Um, and finally, just back to your, your results, one thing we didn't touch upon was, well, two things you mentioned, like the hunger, the adaptive response is the metabolic rate decreases and the hunger goes uh, increases. Um, did you measure either of those and what was the results from, from the trial? Yes, so we measured uh, both of those um, and the hunger hormones as well. So um, we haven't, um, we're um, writing that up for publication now. With the energy expenditure, we measured that and um, it seemed that the energy expenditure was um, reduced to a lesser extent. Um, in the people on the intermittent energy restriction compared to people on the continuous energy restriction Um, in terms of um, because everyone when they lose weight they're going to have a reduction in energy expenditure and just because their body is smaller um, and the people on the um, continuous diet their energy expenditure was reduced um, even more than you would expect based on that smaller body size, whereas right. the people intermittent diet, um, their energy expenditure was only reduced to the extent that you'd expect it to be reduced based on a smaller body size. So it seems there was some metabolic advantage of the intermittent energy restriction in terms of less of a drop in energy expenditure. And sorry, the hunger? And the hunger, oh, we ha- we'll, um, oh, we'll watch this. Okay, we'll, yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> get that, get that cool. out there in the, um, once we've done all the analysis and analysed it really carefully. Yeah. All right. Um, just one last thing on the, on this concept of refeeding, if you want to call it that. Um, I heard this a while ago that when they first, a couple of researchers proposed there's two methods so you can do the, the this um, refeeding, this period like you did. And the other one, which is, um, often employed like in bodybuilding and fitness communities, this concept of reverse dieting. So obviously these um, athletes and people go, to, you know, they diet down to a quite a low body fat um, and they can apparently after a contest or whatever within a, a week or so, you know, rebound dramatically back to when they, before they even dieted. Um, some are employing this strategy of slowly increasing the calories incrementally each week um, but not getting it straight back up to the energy balance is there any rationale or evidence for that so that more slow and progressive approach? Yes, yeah, so the reverse dieting. Um, it makes sense because straight after a period of energy restriction, so for example in that athlete or anyone, athlete or non-athlete, at the end of a period of weeks of dieting, um, energy restriction will be reduced. And if you go straight back on to... Um, the amount of food that you were eating before, even if you reduce it a little bit because you've got a smaller body size Mm. and you need less energy, if you go straight back to that um, level of food intake, then you'll just gain, gain weight. And also the other thing is once you've been dieting for a period, your body is stripped of 
all its excess glucose uh, carbohydrate store, so all the glycogen in your liver and muscles has been stripped away. And when you start eating again, you'll quickly gain back that glycogen and um, you'll gain weight, but it's not fat, it's just um, glycogen and, and water oh, okay. weight. Right, so by taking it slowly, you, um, you, you keep losing a little bit of of fat while your body is gaining back that muscle and so therefore you don't see that shocking increase on the scales that can derail people mm. and put but also um once you finish dieting your metabolism according to some of the research which shows that the drop in metabolic rate is transient and can be reversed in 10 or 14 days or three months or something um with time metabolic rate should come back up to to um, normal, and I've seen it happening in people in the lab that have dieted, and I've seen with my own eyes, you know, the measurements of metabolic rate, those people's metabolic rate before the diet, during the diet, and after the diet, and I see it goes down, and metabolic rate comes back up again some weeks or months after the diet. So it makes sense to slow to yeah reverse diet and uh, refeed slowly don't go straight into eating um, as much as you would if you'd never dieted okay. straight away all right so there's two strategies there brilliant okay so now we're going to I just want to uh, transition to another intermittent so we've we've covered off intermittent um, dieting um, which um, might get confused with um, some popular dieting methods at the moment intermittent fasting now you've, um, I don't know if you've actually put, conducted the research on it, but you've been following this in the literature for a period of time. So I wouldn't mind getting your your views and findings on on these strategies. So first of all, um, can you just sort of frame up what is intermittent fasting? What are some of the the protocols? Yep. Okay. So intermittent fasting is a subtype of intermittent energy restriction, and intermittent fasting could be defined as when um, energy intake is very severely restricted to about, I don't know, zero or 20 percent of um, energy requirements um, for a, a short period of time, a short, short, sharp period of fasting or semi-fasting. And yeah, usually one, two, three or four days per week. Some protocols involve alternate day fasting, so you fast or semi-fast on one day of the week and the next day you eat ad libitum, you eat to hunger, and then the following day you fast again, um, so alternate days. Some protocols um, recommend two days of fasting. That's like the 5-2 diet where you choose any two days of the week. They can be um, consecutive or non-consecutive of a fast semi-fasting and then the rest of the time is spent eating um, ad libitum so so very normally um, interestingly for thousands of years there's been all sorts of religious fasts that involve this type of um, intermittent fasting as well so um, for example sunnah fasting that a lot of people of the Muslim faith do involves having nil by mouth sunrise to sunset two days a week. So it's a bit like an ancient version of a 5-2 diet. Mm. So there's, there's all sorts of um, variations on on that, on those types of protocols. 
So, um, what was your question? Sorry. Oh, that was that was just a, a bit of a, an overview. So, um, how, yeah, how do these compare? Com- say to just state caloric restriction. Is there advantages or disadvantages in terms of you know whether it's weight loss or metabolic control, hunger, or and does it have a, any um, effect on this adaptive thermogenesis? Yeah. Okay. So when it comes to effects on weight loss or effects on glucose homeostasis or um, risk factors for cardiometabolic disease like blood lipids and things, um, intermittent fasting protocols and continuous energy restriction, they're equivalent. There's been several um, systematic reviews, some with meta-analyses. There's also now been uh, three one-year randomized controlled trials that have compared the effects of intermittent fasting protocols with continuous energy restriction and all the literature consistently says they are equivalent. So uh, it's really a case of pick your diet if you like the idea of intermittent fasting and it appeals to you, you can stick with it um, you know, for a period of time in order to lose some weight, then go for it. If it's too hard, you know, that, that fasting concept, if it's too hard, you don't need to go for that. You can just use a conventional type of diet. So they're really equivalent. We looked into the literature looking at the effects of intermittent fasting on aspects of the adaptive response to energy restriction. And apart from effects on hunger, where there seems to be some hunger suppression with the intermittent fasting diet, we didn't see any other evidence of intermittent fasting regimes reducing adaptive responses to energy restriction. And this was true of, you know, there was no difference between diet types on Um, energy expenditure, there was no difference on thyroid function, there was no difference on IGF-1 or IGF-1 binding protein concentrations in the circulation. Um, We looked at a range of parameters from the literature. There wasn't a lot of literature out there, but all the studies that had compared these aspects of the adaptive response to energy restriction showed similar outcomes with both types of diets. So There does, however, seem to be some advantage of the intermittent fasting diets for hunger control. I mean, some studies say that people on intermittent fasting diets are hungrier and more irritable than people on continuous diets. And if if you're someone who has that, that hunger and irritability on that kind of extreme fasting day, then it's it's not going to be a diet that's going to be fun for you. Um, but um, some people do have this experience of reduced drive to eat, reduced hunger on those fasting days in the diet. And, and that reduction in hunger, paradoxically, seems to continue on the non-fasting days yeah. of the diet. Right. Yeah, so, so there are vast people, for example, they've told people, right, on um, every second day you eat 25% of your requirements and then on every on the alternate days, you should eat 120, 125% of your, mm-hmm. uh, re- no, 175% of your requirements. Wow. So it should balance out. But people can't eat that much yeah. um, on, on fasting days. They can't do it or they won't do it and they lose weight. So that's that's an advantage of okay. the diet. But overall, you're still inducing, say, over the week, a, 
a reasonable um, caloric restriction, which you could achieve um, if you just did a, a constant, milder caloric restriction. Yeah, that, okay. that's right. Yep. Yeah. All right, well, and, um, yeah, sorry, yeah. continue. And it seems to be um, ketosis that's induced by that, that fasting day, and we know that those ketones, they do get into the brain, and we know from animal studies that ketones can suppress those brain centres that are um, controlling hunger. So there's probably something related to the ketogenic nature okay. of uh, semi-fasting. Interesting. Um, well, it's good to know there's different, it's perhaps up to the personal preference because I, I think I heard you before, um, you might be like myself, I, I really struggle fasting. Um, so I, I get the hangry, but others I, I speak to, they find that it's really achievable for them. So I think it's what suits a person. Was there a, 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 um, a rationale between that um, variance in response people have to fasting? Um, a, a reason for yeah, why? I, I, wasn't, yeah, um, it's only a small proportion. I mean, in the studies that have been done to date, they look they look at means and averages, and um, most research nowadays doesn't look at individual mm, response. Of course, to, you know, we're still moving towards um, personalized research and nutrition, but um, yeah, who knows? People are different. Some people. <laughs> You and me, we get hangry, and I can't cope with fasting. Well, I thought I can't cope with fasting, but and um, other people, yeah, they They're they seem to. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's it's tools in the toolbox for for um, different people. Um, whilst we're here, there's other another one that um, there seems to be some pretty good literature building on this one about the the time restricted feeding and particularly the early time restricted feeding. So, um, could you just explain the concept there and and what some of the preliminary findings are? Yeah, so time-restricted feeding involves, um, as the name suggests, restric restricting the time in which you allow yourself to eat. So, uh, for example, you might eat only between midday and 6 p.m., so maybe you only eat in a six-hour window and all the rest of the time you're, you're fasting. And um, in terms of animal studies, there's really good evidence from animal studies on this and also some emerging evidence on human studies. So the idea of it comes from the fact that um, we operate physiological, physiologically on a circadian clock, and at some part, some times of the day, our bodies are better at burning fuels, and at other times of the day, our bodies are better at storing fuels. And if we eat at the right time, then uh, our body will, um, we, if we eat at certain times, then we could um, potentially manipulate what our body does with the food and ideally um, encourage our body to burn more food than store. Um, with animals, when animals, rats and mice, are fed at the time, only at the times when they burn fuels, then it's been found that you can feed them as much rubbish as they want to eat, you know, Tim Tams and, um, mm. uh, um, I mean, I shouldn't um, put any brands, <laughs> but when we fed our rats, they really, really liked um, Tim Tams, rats and mice, they love those. Um, but you feed them anything and they'll, they'll, they love those foods and they'll eat it. Even if you feed them a high-fat diet um, and... Um, but if you only feed them in the times of the day when they burn fuel, then they will not get fat. Whereas if you allow 
other uh, other groups of animals to eat um, those foods ad libitum all times of the day or night, then they will get fat. So there's good um, a good basis for the timing of, of and, food intake. But the, the, the yeah. time-restricted rats are still eating the same amount of calories, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, there's the same amount of calories, uh, which, yeah, which is really amazing. So it's it's some um, benefits without having to restrict, <laughs> which is just um, that's what we all want. Um, although if we can do it with really healthy, nutritious foods, it's better than doing with with only high fat foods. Yes. Um, so with humans, this has been trialed as well, and there has been. Um, a number of small scale at this stage randomized controlled trials where they've got people to eat um, in restricted windows, usually around um, uh, around um, nine or ten hours in the day, which doesn't sound very restricted, mm. but you know, most people are eating for fourteen hours of yeah. the day. We most of the day and uh, that did result in small reductions in weight to the tune of one or one and a half kilos over a period of of um a few weeks so it did look promising it seems with humans the effect may be related to the fact that you eat less so if there's less um opportunities yeah. eating then you do eat less um, but hey, you know, if it's a tu- if it's a tool that can help you to eat less, then then that's good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with larger studies, they might find also some magic factor, like with the rodent studies, that um, you can lose more weight uh, even on the same number of kilojoules, perhaps. But um, I think it's promising. So I mean, personally, myself, I do try and stop eating um, after after dinner, and um, I, you know, it's something that can't hurt, and um, and um, it yeah. could reduce food intake and weight. Absolutely, and it's something probably uh, achievable for for most patients. If a if a um, practitioner prescribed, just you know, eat sensibly, but stop by six or seven p.m. at night. Maybe don't start until later on in the morning. Um, yeah, let's watch this space. Um, yeah, I'm really um, intrigued and excited about that that research and. Hopefully, people don't misconstrue it and think it's an opportunity to have um, junk food concentrated in a small, small period of time. But hopefully, common sense will prevail. All right. Well, um, yeah, we've really uncovered a lot of stones here with um, fasting and the adaptive thermogenesis. So, I'll, um, I'll, I'll wrap up shortly. But um, perhaps just could I uh, ask you what current trials are you doing, and what's what's underway? You've got some exciting things on the horizon. Yes. So at the University of Sydney, we were always looking for participants for our clinical weight loss trials. So we're looking at variations of, um, uh, we're always looking for um, ways to help people to lose weight um, such that that adaptive response to energy restriction is managed or reduced or um, acknowledged. You know, we're trying to tame that beast. Um, The types of weight loss trials we're looking at involve severe energy restriction, so using um, very low energy diets, which paradoxically seem to suppress some of the aspects of the adaptive response to energy 
restriction, at least um, during some phases of the diet. So this is something we're actively investigating. And um, we will have a new trial with that starting uh, next year, 2019. We'll be looking for um, 288 participants. Um, these people are um, people we're seeking within the Perth, um, so the Sydney metropolitan area. And, um, yeah, so there's that. We're also running an Australia-wide uh, clinical trial, which is done via online uh, questionnaires. And this is looking at um, helping people to achieve weight loss while also helping people to address manage and reduce binge eating behavior because as we've discussed dieting leads to this strong drive to eat and that can potentially um, exacerbate that um, it could potentially exacerbate binge eating in people prone to binge eating um, and so we're investigating a, a trial um, called the happy fed um, uh, a new program, the Happy Fed program, that aims to simultaneously address um, excess weight as well as binge eating behaviour. And that's an Australia-wide trial via online questionnaires. So, um, yeah, I guess uh, if anyone is interested, they could contact me on amanda.salas at sydney.edu.au and I can um, put you in touch with people who could... Um, um, see if there's a um, clinical weight loss trial that may be suitable for you. Great. Well, yeah, I'll put those links uh, in the show notes. So, yeah, that's that's incredible. I'm, I'm sure many people are grateful you've made the transition from um, investigating mice to, to helping people. And it sounds like, you know, it's a real more progressive understanding of obesity. It's not – well, it is simply calories in, calories out in the, on a basic level, but there's a lot of nuances there and how we can – uh, make waste, weight loss successful for the long term. So I'm really looking forward to um, what you're about to publish and also we'll remind our audience that you will be presenting at next year's International Congress on Natural Medicine as well for us. So, yeah, we might have some further updates then, I, I hope. Yes. So Great. Thank you That's for your... Sorry. Thank you. Sorry. It was wonderful to talk with you, well, Nathan. Thanks great. so much. Well, thank you for your time. Um, I think you're about to fly off abroad and, and lecture more. So I appreciate that at the short notice you've uh, made the time to um, update our audience on these important and fascinating areas. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.